New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You too can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. We at New Dimensions thank you for your support. Hello, I'm Justine Willis-Toms. Welcome to the New Dimensions Cafe. Today, I'm hosting Dr. Stephen G. Post. He's the author of Dignity for Deeply Forgetful People, How Caregivers Can Meet the Challenges of Alzheimer's Disease. And I'm speaking with Dr. Post at his home by remote connection. Stephen, welcome to the New Dimensions Cafe. It's a complete delight to be with you, Justine. Thank you so much. It's my pleasure, and especially talking about this subject. And I know in your work, you suggest that the term dementia is negative and not a true description of those who are deeply forgetful. So tell us about the stigma of that term dementia and why you use another kind of description for it. Well, dementia, dementia a decline from a previous mental state. So you're defining an individual as declined, and that tends to separate them from us. There but for the grace of God go I. And there are all kinds of negative metaphors that go with that. Shell, husk, empty, gone, absent. And you hear that used commonly. So this is inappropriate. I think deeply forgetful people, deep forgetfulness is actually almost a mystical idea, mm-hmm. you know, uh, that somehow we're all on this spectrum of forgetfulness. I have an experience uh, the other day when I was out in the parking lot behind the medical school and I asked a medical student if she knew where I parked my car. She laughed a little bit. But then there was another time when I asked her, Uh, Does she know if I drove to work today, (laughs) which was even worse? So it's a spectrum. And we all have times when we can't remember a name, when we know we should remember a name, and it's so frustrating. What we're talking about is a common human experience that's intensified in the population of people who are particularly deeply forgetful. But we're still with them. We're one. They're part of our shared humanity. It's not them versus us. And if we put them in the position to try and live in our everyday world, so to speak, of productivity or really having to use our cognition for different tasks and so forth and, you know, remembering names and stuff, and we put that pressure on them, what is the result of that? And what is the antidote to that? Well, it puts them in stress and sometimes very protracted stress. I tell the story uh, in the book of an elderly couple driving up to the elder health care center, and uh, the driver was the husband, the woman in the passenger seat was, uh, was his wife, and she just couldn't figure out how to pull open a door handle. And she, she was there, she was doing her very best, and then he started screaming at her, yelling at her. It was absolutely abusive. But he was just doing the best he could because, you know, this is a difficult thing for him. And so I walked over and I calmed him down and I said, look, you've got to just 
acknowledge that this is what she is right now, where she is. This is her limitation. So let's just walk around and open the door, which we did. And then we brought her into the medical center and everybody calmed down and she did pretty well. But it was an ordeal for her. And so we definitely need to go into their world and not judge them by our standards because it's totally counterproductive. So I think that your key idea is to really support us in compassionate care. Yeah, it's part of life, you know. I mean, in every culture, um, they may not use the expression dementia or talk about Alzheimer's or other diseases that cause dementia, but, you know, people get a little squirrely, uh, if you will. And that's okay. It's, it's just part of natural brain aging. And I think we need to just honor that and understand it. The idea that somehow we have to bring these people out of their reality into ours is arrogance. And compassion requires the use of the moral imagination to understand the subjectivity that they are experiencing. So we have to be very careful about that. And that includes you know, medical treatments. I mean, it's not compassionate if someone has no insight whatsoever into what that butterfly needle is that's coming at their, their wrist. Uh, and possibly for them, it's somewhere on the range between assault and torture. Maybe we need to think, you know, from their perspective, this is not compassionate, even though we think it's for a good reason. And that raises all kinds of questions about what we do medically with these individuals as they become more deeply forgetful. So I want to ask you some advice. I have a dear friend who has been a friend for over 40 years. And right now she is going into cognitive decline and she knows it and she laughs about it. She has some humor around it. She's not stressing about it. She's surrounded by a really beautiful spiritual community and she does have a partner, although he's aging himself and who's deeply loving. So I want to know, what is your best advice for me as a friend to her? How can I be the best friend to her at this time? Well, sing with her. There's a choir in New York called the Unforgettables. And they actually practice these beautiful pieces. They're choral pieces that individuals would know from church or synagogue or whatever. Or maybe they're just Broadway pieces. And when they sing, they come together. The caregivers realize there's a lot more there than met the eye in their loved one. They communicate. They'll even have conversation afterwards. It's quite amazing. They do a concert every month at St. Peter's Church on Lexington and 50th Street. It's something to behold. So music is the language of the angels. And, and so sing, use personalized music. The idea of identifying a piece of music that somebody identified with earlier in life and bringing that uh, into their experience with, say, an iPod is a great idea. You know, the uh, great composer Aaron Copeland, who did Appalachian Spring, he spent the last five years of his life in Peekskill, New York, up along the Hudson, with Alzheimer's disease. And people came in, they visited him, composers, musicians, because this was the great Aaron Copeland. And when they went there, they were respectful. 
They asked him questions, even if they didn't think they'd get an answer. They were respectful, kind, and sporadically, he would rise up and he would go to his piano. He would sit down and he would play the six notes that form the two chords that are the basic structure of Appalachian Spring. And uh, Murray Susskind, who was the conductor of the uh, Detroit Symphony, I used to be in Ann Arbor, he once told uh, this story to the audience there. And what he said was, well, what was Copeland trying to tell us? Was he trying to say, this is what I want to be remembered for? Was he trying to say, I'm still here? And then he turns around and he does this incredible job with Appalachian Spring. So we have to just notice and observe and treasure and cherish all these expressions of continuing self-identity that are there if only we will notice. That's a Larry Dossi term. If only we will notice those hints and those expressions. I was doing art therapy with a guy who every morning he came in and with crayon and paper, he drew this crazy bunch of lines, but there was always two lines down the middle. And we would ask him, so what's this? And he couldn't respond. But one day he did. He said, this is a map for my daughter to find her way to my house. I have a lot of these stories in, in the book and they're very well documented. So this kind of lucidity is surprising. And it's always right there around the corner. you got to just keep your fingers crossed. But when you experience that, really treasure it. And when you say noticing, it's not like, okay, these moments of lucidity, it's not going to cure them. And we're not at war with the disease, so to speak, to try and make it better or anything. What you're talking about feels more like relaxing into what is. Yes, it's healing. It's definitely healing. It has nothing to do with the biological aspects of the disease. It is healing, and it is emotional, it is relational, and it has to do with affirming, not humiliating. There's too much humiliation in the world, too much de-dignification, to use a word, floating around. And when you honor these expressions, it is such a statement. There's so much hatred, so much violence, so much craziness in this world right now. I got to tell you, you know, a good caregiver is the salt of the earth, the beacon on a hill. And I think some of them are such wonderful, devoted people. And the good ones always know how to connect. I have a story. Can I tell you one quick story? Oh, please, please. So I went to a nursing home in Chardon, Ohio. Uh, with Joe Foley, who was a very distinguished neurologist and co-founder of the National Alzheimer's Association. And we went into a special care unit in a nursing home, Heather Hill, and there probably were 20 people or so in this unit. They all had their own little bedrooms and then an open area where they would ambulate during the day and have some limited activities. So we read the little biosketch about a guy named Jim. It was on the wall of his room. Now, biosketching is very important because it lets people know this person had a narrative. They had a life, you know, and you want to connect them with that. You don't want to just completely separate them from their story. So that was really good. And we read that he had two sons, that he'd been an investor, 
And so we went out into the open area and I asked the nurse, show us where Jim is. And she showed me over to Jim. And I took Jim by the arm and we sat down with him. And I said, Jim, how are your kids? And he got very anxious. Uh, you could just see it, you know, because I was putting him under pressure and stress. But when I said, hey, how's Zeke? How's Jill? He lit up, you know, because I was cueing him. And obviously, you know, he was going to remember them in that situation. I mean, if his energy could be electric, the place would have been on fire. So just by changing my language game like that, I got to connect with him. And now this guy, this will amaze you and all your listeners. He had a white twig in his hand and it had it, it was all sanded on the edges so it couldn't be used to poke anybody. You know, it was pretty wide. And uh, he took it and he placed it in my hands. And he looked at me and he smiled effusively. And again, if a smile was electric, the place would have been on fire. And it was incredible. And he said three words. He said, God is love. And that was it. And then I asked the nurse, so what's the story with Jim? Well, he grew up on a farm. You know, his dad was a, you know, typical northeasternly Ohio Christian. And he loved his father a lot. And like a lot of people with deep forgetfulness, he'd gone back in time to a point where he most felt attachment, tender, loving care. That's very common. And that white twig he was holding was a symbol of his father's love because his father gave him a chore every morning, which was to bring kindling in for the fireplace. So you could see the purpose, even though it looks like what he was doing had no purpose at all. He was showing me the thing that was most meaningful in his life. And then, lo and behold, there was an old puppet rag doll, like a bear doll that you know, you'd have on your head if you were a little girl. And it was in the middle of the floor, and it was totally beat up. It was wet, and it was just all ripped apart. But he ambulated over there, and he bent down, and he managed to pick it up. And then he went to the corner of the uh, unit, and he put it on the lap of a woman who was there in a chair crying. And I asked the nurse, what's the story with the doll? And she said, well, that's her doll. So Jim, he had a lot of emotional intelligence, actually a lot more than, say, de Kooning at his worst. <laughs> you know, I mean, you know, he was living in love. Even though he was relatively silent, his spirituality was there. God is love. And he could still do things that were charitable for his neighbor. So look at what's there. Look at the positives. In this world we live in, of fragmentation and hatred and so forth, you know, Jim was in a pretty good place. Wow. Wow. That's such an inspiring story and will help us to really, I think, look again at what's going on. That's so much more than we can conceive so I just suggest that people really pick up your book because we're just tapping into just the smallest little piece of what you have written about, all your research and all your work, Stephen, which is so beautiful. So I want to remind our listeners that I've been speaking with Dr. Stephen G. Post, P-O-S-T, author of Dignity for Deeply Forgetful People, How Caregivers can meet the challenges of Alzheimer's disease. And to find out more about his work, you can go to his website, stephengpost.com. 
or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org, where you'll find over 1,700 programs. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. I want to thank you for joining us at the New Dimensions Cafe. I invite you to please join us again. You've been listening to the New Dimensions Cafe. This series of shorter interviews features many of the remarkable guests also featured on our internationally syndicated one-hour New Dimensions radio series. To access more than a thousand hours of programs, to subscribe to our newsletters, or to become a member, please visit us at newdimensions.org. New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You too can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. We at New Dimensions thank you for your support.